You're listening to the NASM CPT Podcast with Rick Ritchie, the official podcast of the National Academy of Sports Medicine. Welcome to the NASM CPT Podcast. My name is Rick Ritchie. I'm happy to be here today, and I'm happy you're here listening, whether it's the podcast, you're on the Facebook Live, watching the streaming coming through. And if you are on the Facebook Live portion of this, which tends to happen every Monday and Friday at 12 noon Eastern time, then you're in luck because you get to ask questions live. And our producer, Greg Esposito, is there, and he will field those phone calls. He's going to be doing that today, and he's going to be doing it with a very special guest that we got here. Uh, his name is Tony Ritchie, and not to be spelled like my name, he's R-I-C-C-I. Mine is R-I-C-H-E-Y. So Tony is with us today, but let me tell you a little bit about him, and then I'll let him dig into his story. And then we're going to talk about fight sports, fight conditioning, weight cut, things like that for fighters. But um, Mike Fantagrassi, who is uh, is kind of a wonderful contact at the National Academy of Sports Medicine, had connected me with Tony. He knew my background in fight sports, and he knew Tony's background in higher education in his uh, as a scholar. His contributions to what he's done in the fight game is pretty important. So I want to welcome everybody. We got Tony Ritchie here. Tony, what's up, man? Hey, Dr. Rich. Thanks for having me today. Uh, uh, excited. Uh, I love my Nazim team, by the way. You what? I said I'm, I love the Nazim team. Of course, I am a PES, CES, and I work with you guys closely at the university. Of course, I teach. Uh, I'm an, a professor of exercise physiology and sports science at LIU Brooklyn where we run uh, some of the NASM courses too, proudly, and our students love that. So always always happy to be joining on with the NASM guys and, and oh. the team and, and those members and those who are certified through the organization. Oh man, well, I was excited to uh, to be connected with you because we had some people in common. I there was a connection with uh, with RGA. So you're you're in Brooklyn, I, I am in Orlando, I am I'm in Manhattan. And we got connections there with some of Henzo Gracie's trainers. And I mentioned PJ McMahon and Jamie Crowley. And you yep. knew those guys. Um, tell us a little bit about what you do that's not at the university. Okay. So I have, a, you know, just in brief, uh, grew up in a wonderful era of boxing. And my father was a big boxing fan. So the Hagler Hearns era, oh, Muhammad yeah. Ali Frazier. Now, I was very young even during those fights, but I took a great interest in fight sports as a youngster. And uh, loved boxing and, and did some judo and stayed with that my entire life. So in addition to my academic career, which is really an amalgamation of the sports sciences, nutrition science and sports psychology at the, at the doctoral level, I was always a fan of fight sports and mm -hmm. really, Rich, very fascinated by fight physiology. That's what always kept me as a, if you will, a strength and conditioning professional geared toward fight sports, particularly boxing, because the physiology of what happens in a, in a fight is really incredible. You know, the, the cognitive demands, the peripheral demands, you need local muscle endurance, you need much um, cardiorespiratory endurance, strength, speed, power. So the point to that is, when I combined my education, strength, conditioning, the sports sciences, it really married well with the fight sports because I was a huge fan. And as I began to study fight sports more and more, I realized, wow, you know, it's a bit different than just doing standardized strength and conditioning protocols for football, basketball, baseball, the sports where our S&C origin 
really comes from. So the, along the path, I'm like, cool, you know, I love this. I can get to teach. I'm going to stay in the sports sciences. I'm a big fan of fight sports. So for about 25 years now, I've been working with athletes just almost exclusively in jiu-jitsu, BJJ, of course, uh, kickboxing, boxing, MMA, and some judo. So my love with those sports got married to my academia, and I've had a wonderful time doing it. So I've been able to work with, uh, gosh, many title fights, and Chris Weidman, Caitlin Jukagian, Aljamain Sterling, Ryan LaFleur, numerous UFC fighters, Bellator, and professional kickboxers. It's been wonderful. Oh, that sounds good. I know I know so many of those names that you've mentioned. I had uh, Caitlin on a previous podcast that I did with Everlast. And so uh, I'm, I'm really impressed with, with what you've done and who you've worked with. I'll ask a few questions. Um, there's something interesting about contact sports. And it, it's we can talk about the physiology of what's going on, and we can talk about um, kind of balancing this anaerobic output and and kind of going in hard and fast and then backing off so you can catch your energy, catch your breath. But while you're catching your energy and catching your breath in a fight sport, you might also be getting hit. So <laughs> there's, there's some challenges there. And so another interesting thing is that I might do mitt work with people for a long time and then move into sparring. And the first few times I spar with somebody, I never hit them back. I never strike them. I just let them try to get used to hitting me. Now, they could go round after round after round hitting mitts. But as soon as you put somebody in front of them, they're not. I'm not even hitting them back. They're gassed within moments. What is going on with that? And then what is going on with how you prepare somebody for actually getting hit by something? That's a wonderful question. And I think that as you probably see also, Rick, it 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 phases. In better words, obviously, someone hitting mitts and as time progresses, they will gain better cognition and endurance in hitting the mitts. And then the same thing with um, when sparring comes. But I think the first thing we have to take into consideration, reactive skill, skill is much more difficult than proactive. Ooh, it's nice. much more demanding, right? So when you watch an American football game, the offense wears down the defense. The defense rarely wears down the offense unless they're really physical and beat them up early. Why? The defense has to react to what the offense already knows. That's right. Okay, so a lot of cognition. There is more in a higher state of reaction and, and almost, if you will, there's probably a greater uh, fight response. So reacting to an attack is very different than proactively hitting mitts because simultaneously you're going, you have to process what you're going to do and what immediately may happen to you. And let's be honest. I mean, you know, anytime you can get hit, if you're not used to that, it's going to take a high energy demand, hyper arousal, attention. Everybody does tighten up when getting hit. So I think it's, I think it's the first thing to look at right there. And you well articulated already is the physiology changes. <laughs> It changes because the brain is changing and what it's doing. And the brain runs physiology technically in, right? Okay. So if, if you're nervous about something and you have fear about something, that's going to transmit somatically and you're going to tighten up and you're going to tire much more. So when you say one, two, three, like jab, right hook in a mid combination, and, and that's kind of proactive. They respond to your call, but they are doing that. They're hitting the mid. And there's nothing they have to respond to to your next cue, particularly, and it's not threatening. 
Mm. And then here's the other issue, too. Um, getting hit for you, of course, isn't very good for you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the physiology behind taking trauma is a whole nother thing that's going to make you fatigue and a, a complex constellation of other mechanisms that are going to make the fatigue um, rate much higher, right? Even yeah. if somebody's jamming at you and not hitting you, that's harder than hitting the mitt, okay? If you're just technical right. sparring but no contact. Once the contact occurs, now we have a whole different set of physio physiological mechanisms we have to understand. So to your point, it, it's, you know, proactive. I mean, hitting a ball off a tee is proactive. Hitting it when the pitcher throws it, reactive. A little bit more challenging, you know? Yeah, that that's such a great point. And that, one of the interesting things is that we talk about these uh, open loop and closed loop systems. And it's very difficult when when there's an open loop, right? So if somebody throws a punch and let's say I move out of the way, I can't redirect my punch in the middle of throwing a punch. Right. So you kind of have to have a plan and a follow up, a whole series of computer programs that say if then. And that's really the difference between people who are, are highly trained and those who are not is the compilation, the the add on of if thens where they can answer questions as soon as they arise, when a new situation shows up, they've seen it before and they've done it enough times to be able to re react to it um, in in an effective manner. Now, there's always a winner and a loser, right? There's always a winner and a loser. Rarely are you ever going to have that completely split. But um, talk me through some of the things that you guys do for the strength and conditioning of your fight athletes. And then I want to get into something else you mentioned, which is the mental game of it. So mm -hmm. I want to get into that and then we'll get into the, the, the nutrition component, but talk me through the strength and conditioning. Somebody's going to do, um, three minute fights or five minute fights, but they only get, um, uh, rounds, but they only get one minute break. How do you train for that? Okay, good question, too. So we're basically breaking down the cardiorespiratory facets versus maybe the neuromotor, right, power and speed, because they're separate entities. So right. a couple of things I think is really, really important, Rick. So a lot of times we will say, well, there are well-opted strength and conditioning protocols. And I really like, and I mean this in my heart, the way NASM has organized their, their OPT model as an example, right? Now, as we take that as an example, we have to look at it and go, okay, all fighters may need hypothetically eight biomotor qualities, local muscle endurance, cardiorespiratory endurance, strength, speed, power, whatever that given number is. However, I've always said this, all fighters need the same qualities. Not all fighters possess the same qualities equally. Yeah. Accordingly, where those models, where the emphasis occurs is probably going to take place on the strength and or the weakness of that particular athlete. So I would like to use Caitlin as an example. I may not be doing as much because she's um, Caitlin Chukagian, the number one UFC women's flyweight contender. She fought Valentina for the title. Um, she fell short on that, but probably will be back. But my point to this is, to your great question, Caitlin does a high volume of sparring. And for I can I to this day do not know how her body takes the volume of stress that she yeah. puts it under without repetitive stress injury. My point is there because of her sparring volume, her cardiorespiratory conditioning may not be my emphasis. So I'm going to work on the different qualities, speed, power, 
strength accordingly, right? So how I train the fighter is contingent upon how they train and what their strengths are. She has tremendous cardiorespiratory endurance, does a lot of sparring, hence I move more to the neuromotor power and speed side. Now, if I get a heavy wrestler who's now working from normally, you know, a, a, um, a two, two, three, okay, in rounds um, and your periods, for example, all right, or they haven't gone into MMA, but they have a great strength and conditioning background because D1 programs have that. They've done a lot of lifting, but now they're making a transition into a five-minute semi-stand-up round. Well, there now we're going to put more emphasis on the cardiorespiratory conditioning, time on the feet, spending more time vertically where most of the time they haven't been before. So my point is you ask a great question in saying, well, okay, well, this is five minutes, so here's how we train him with one minute rest. Here's three minutes. Here's how we train him with one minute rest. That's wonderful. But if that athlete was already outstanding in one quality, I'm going to another quality. So, gotcha. I, so that, you know, they always say, keep it simple, stupid, and that's fine. But we have to watch that because, you know, every fighter, you know, this is a sport where you could be 5'10", and be a, a, a bantamweight or 5'4". So we have very different body types. And accordingly, we need to train them differently. So how much time do you spend actually, because I know you do mostly strength and conditioning, and in strength and conditioning, you focus oftentimes on what the weaknesses are. But as a fight coach, you have to make sure that you stay on top of what your greatest qualities are. So you have to do the the things that you're not good at, especially if the other person's good at them. You have to at least learn how to defend them. And then you still have to be really good at what you're already really good at. So how do you balance that out as a strength coach and a fight coach with somebody that says, we still need to focus on what you're good at and have you practice that, but we also need to work on what your weaknesses are? Wonderful question. And a lot of times that's collaboration with the skill coaches and observation, right? Okay. So watch the sparring. I go to Ray Longo, I can go to Matt Sarah and say nicely, guys, what do you see? What do we need? I think if in order for strength coaches, fight performance coaches to have success with the team, it's not always for us to walk in and just dictate what's going to happen. We need that collaboration with the skill coach and the skill coach may say, Tony looks great. He's doing this. She's doing this. Um, but boy, uh, fatiguing. Let's go the reverse. I have a, a wonderful young fighter world kickboxing champ, um, over, very good at jiu-jitsu, but mm. mentally fatigues when on the ground, nerves, okay, anxiety. So what do I do? I Simultaneously, I'm trying to integrate there the building of the mental confidence with the motor movements and, and training movements that would be applicable. So what am I going to do? I'm going to have him do a lot more hip thrusts. I may have to do a lot more movements in the supine position to increase strength, power, because that's an opportunity in which I can get him comfortable there, believing that we are working on things that are going to augment his performance there. So a, a lot of times what it is, Rick, is I go back and forth. How are we doing here? Are we making improvement? People go toward their strengths when things get tough, right? So yeah, therefore, yeah. you know, they work their strengths. They almost work it. If the skill coach tells me, boy, they used to have a great right hand and it's gone, then maybe I'll do whatever I can to augment some power back into that hand and get to mentally believing that. But I will go in and out. It's a constant assessment. Assumption in this 
I think is is not a good thing because it's a moving dynamic target. They're good mm-hmm. at this. Now they became better at this and they lost this. Okay, we go back to work on that other quality if it's slightly diminished. I gotcha. And and you were talking about, you know, working with people that can share their opinion. And I'm sure Matt Sarah probably has a really hard time sharing what his opinions are. He just doesn't speak <laughs> his mind. Yeah. <laughs> He's very nonverbal, Rick. Very nonverbal. <laughs> So I I love it. I think it's great that you work with some of the biggest names in MMA with Matt, Sarah, Chris Weidman. I've seen Chris Weidman at Henzo's more than I've seen Henzo's at Henzo's. So (laughs) I know that uh, uh, seeing Henzo Gracie over at the headquarters is like spotting a snow leopard. But it's fun to be a part of something that's so big and the quality of what gets produced within this family. And uh, it is, it's a family of fighters, it is a family of coaches, and it is a family of people that it's not just about the, the jiu-jitsu, like they're starting to bring in guys like you, right? And they're starting to bring in more people that you see in places like the NFL, where you have a strength and conditioning coach that's on board. You start to see people showing up with physical therapists and athletic trainers and chiropractors that you wouldn't have seen before. It was a, it was a very wild west, and now it's, it's become such a really well-run, well-oiled machine for so many of the fight camps that are out there. So I applaud you and what that team does out there. Uh, before we get into uh, a little bit more, I, I do want to talk about um, uh, weight cutting for fighting. And for those that don't know that are listening, what happens usually, let's say uh, you're walking around weight is 200 pounds, right? That is not the weight that you're going to fight at because uh, what you want to do in, in the fight world is say, I wonder if I can get down to 182. And if I can cut weight at 182 and weigh in, the day before the fight, by the time the fight gets around, I might be able to gain 10, 12, 15 pounds back, and hopefully I'm almost a 200-pound fighter fighting somebody that might be 182 pounds. But what's interesting is that everybody does it. So everybody's still fighting at about 200 pounds even though they weighed in at 182. And here's the thing, Tony, like it's not healthy. It's not healthy. The weight cut's not healthy. Um, the the dehydration that goes on in that process isn't healthy. So there are some some um, promotions that are out there, like uh, like One FC, One Championship. They've they've stopped that. Uh, do you see that ever happening here with some of the big promotions like UFC and Bellator? And can you talk us through? Um, some of the things that are not good, some of the contraindications of these weight cuts that take place. Absolutely, Rick. And again, just a, a wonderful description of exactly what's going on. Okay, couple of things. Great point on one championships. Now, I will tell you this. Um, I think, remember now, uh, weight, weight cutting or weigh-in events are, are money makers. So, yes. Okay. Yes, so, so I'm never going to control whether or not this happens. So right, might be right. UFC or Bellator, right? I mean, it, the big face-offs, the actual weigh-ins now are like 10 a.m. in UFC and Bellator. and But then they will do, hey, and, you know, Joe Rogan will call him on out. I love Joe. You know, yeah. Valentina. And they come out and they face off and people come and that's televised or streamed. So this is a promotional event. And... 
that's not going to easily be removed if there were no weight classes. So just something to think about there too. Okay. Now, um, you're right. Some championship, uh, some um, organizations are going without the cut. And to your point, yes. Here's what we're trying to do in weight cutting. We're actually trying to manage the liability, if you will, or the extent of how bad it is. <clears throat> I can advise an athlete not to do it. But in the end, it's not my decision. It's going right. to be the decision of the athlete, the decision of the coach, the decision of the organization if they wish to continue weight cutting. So what do we have to do? My job is to make it as safe and effective as possible. I think the biggest problem we have here, as you well understand, Rick, is that people are letting themselves go well above scale weight. In unreasonable amount, and I generally find probably somewhere in the range of 10 to 12 percent above scale, and that may even seem high, but about 10 percent above scale is optimal. So what does that mean? If you fight at 185, 205 tops, okay? Now, most go more than that, all right? They do. They may be 15 percent above scale, but how do you make it safer? Safer. Well, some of what NASM certifications teach, some of what um, the ISSN teaches, that is, know your body fat eight to 10 weeks before camp. Because if you know your total body fat percentage and you know what the fighter fought at before, we know how much fat we can lose and the approximate contribution to the scale. And there's gonna be a natural weight loss during during fight camp anyway if you're carrying body fat. It's just a sheer training volume. Yeah. Even with reasonable eating habits. And right. by the way, relatively high calories. Just good yes. food. No junk. Relatively high calories. There's three sessions per day. Exactly to your point. So you're going to see a decline. So I'll look at a fighter, go, okay, they're they're um 14% body fat. They could fight at 10% body fat. They're 205 now. How much am I gonna lose in fat? We usually lose a little bit of muscle, right, during camp, two and a half pounds. It's just inevitable. And then what I start to do, and again, I'm going through how do we make this safe, not is it great for you, because it's not. What's right. their water turnover? How much do they lose? If they leak five or six pounds easily during a session, now I know that they can pull that easily. So my point is as this, right? The alarm comes in as follows. Short notice fights. And when we have to go and lose a ton of body fat, can't do it in time because the more body fat you carry that you don't need, the more muscle and water you have to pull. How to make this safer is to know, manage the camp, manage the calories, manage the training volume, know the lowest amount of body fat the fighter can fight at safely and effectively, get them there so that you've minimized how much water pull that has to occur and how much sheer muscle loss has to occur the last couple of weeks. But to your point, why is it so bad? The emergency to lose 10 pounds of fat in a short duration of time, too much fat on the body, extending a 20 pound water pool, right? Overtraining, excessive physical activity to get the weight off. Glycogen depletion, probably, those are the things that make it really, really dangerous. If the fighter's completely out of shape and says four weeks out, uh-oh, now I got to start worrying about weight cutting. And But we can do it methodically. We really can. 
Well, there there's some fighters who are used to it, right? And and I think that the ones who have done it before have an easier time doing it. Uh, for somebody that's new to it, this is incredibly challenging uh, to to take on. But there also there there historically there have been some deaths during yeah. weight cut, and uh, it's incredibly devastating. It's heartbreaking to think about that. Um, there have been people who have not been able to fight up to capacity because their performance has diminished because they were they've still not recovered from the weight cut by the time they actually have to get into the fight. So, you know, these are these are legitimate concerns that uh, that I think people manage it relatively well, but there's still difficulty doing it. And you might hear commentators sometimes when they talk, they'll they'll mention the weight cut and how much weight they've gained back and how much bigger one fighter is than the other. And that's that's the conversation when they say, you know, this fighter is bigger than the other fighter and you go, "Well, how is that because they just weighed in at the same weight?" It's truly because that dude probably is now 15 pounds heavier than the other fighter <laughs> because yes. they were able to rehydrate because they're walking around weight. Their pre-cut weight is so much higher than somebody else's and it gives them a severe advantage. But there can be absolute disadvantages with that as well. Have you seen this, not necessarily in your camp, but have you seen some of these uh, contraindications take place? And what does that do for you and your camp to help make sure that you keep your guys safe? Yes. And, and look, to you, you articulated it well again. I have seen people go, you know, from Godzilla to I don't want to pick on Mickey Mouse. I love him. But um, just because of the weight cut. Right. So so you said this really well. I have seen by every measurable marker in camp, mm-hmm. every biomotor marker, cardiorespiratory, everything, wonderful improvement. But the last week, the cut goes wrong. There's dehydration and they fall off a cliff. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And so what happens, particularly dehydration is the issue. Can somebody gut out a little bit of glycogen depletion and the localized burn, if you will, a less buffering capacity? Yes. But if they have cut severe amounts of water, uh, and I don't even want to use her name to pick on it, but she once cut 14 pounds overnight from 130, 129 to 115 for a championship fight. A female. Oh, wow. Okay. And she got knocked out in a minute and a half. And she she historically has one of the best chins in all of fighting. So there you saw that impact. The dehydration, the electrolyte imbalance is the greatest danger. So unequivocally, I've seen it. There have been camps where I've worked and the athlete chose someone else on the nutrition side. And I just was in agreement with they were doing. And they were under rehydrated after a tough cut. Oh. And lost a oh. title fight. Maybe that was a big part of the contribution. And I thought it was because when I saw them, I'm like, I don't even recognize this individual. That's right. Okay. So they they were looked terrible, pale skin, no vascularity, no plasma volume. Like these are things that I look for to to, to see if they're they're well um you know well rehydrated and how they look. But to your other point, quickly. Uh, you're really right. There's, it could be a tremendous disadvantage. And you know where it's really dangerous? When one athlete puts a lot of weight back on and the other doesn't? Boxing. Because yeah, it's a yeah. head contact. You cannot have a guy who weighs 15 pounds more or 12 pounds more punching a guy with a right hand or left hand in the head who's 12 pounds lighter. 
That is very dangerous. So the extreme cut, and as we've become better, to your point, at rehydration, we're able to get somebody from 185 to 207 in 36 yeah, hours. Right. Because we know what we're doing. If the other camp doesn't, it's a danger to that person. You're right on. It, it can be something we need to be concerned about for sure. Well, thank you for addressing that. I appreciate that. And that is something that that I've had a hard time with. Not not me personally. I've been able to, to, to hit some cuts, but it's not fun. Uh, and it's really challenging. We see more and more uh, people are getting better at it, but there are still people that fall through the cracks and end up having some real bad fights because of that. Yep. Uh, now, you've mentioned with people like Caitlin and some other fight camps where you've got people doing three-a-days for six-week camps or eight-week camps. All right, I need you to talk me through it because I don't think people understand it is not all bang, 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 100% get in there and spar with the person. Um, tell me what fight camps are like and then please explain to me what your uh, rejuvenation, your recovery schedules, what do you do to actually allow them to not be absolutely miserable two weeks into it that they can keep coming in and producing? Wow, really great question. And that varies, of course, to individual, what motivates them, the structure of their camp. But to your point, yes, a lot of it is skill work, right? So it might be an out, you know, you're a jujitsu guy too. And you might be rolling, okay, for an hour, working on various techniques, defensive techniques that your opponent is very good, uh, maybe applying rear naked choke, uh, guillotine, crucifix, whatever, and you're working defensively against that. So you're getting a lot of work there. It may not be 100%, but still, it's a relatively intense session compared. Then later, you may have some Muay Thai work, mm -hmm. all right, because you're refining your kicking skills and, and you want, you know, you want more power in the kicks. So I would obviously not control the scheduling, but this is high demand cognitively and physically, of course, because you're constantly focusing on new skills and then you have to process those skills and make them permanent skills when you're away from that. So, and then you might see a light session or SNC with me. So I think one of the first things to recovery to your point is I have to know the, ske the schedule to the best of my capacity because my training is last. Okay. And one of the things we make a mistake, I think, and I have when I was younger as a performance coach, oh, strength and conditioning, boom, boom, boom. And we're, put, we're going all out and we don't realize this is the 42nd session of the of the yeah. week you know? yeah yeah <laughs> exaggerating but so in order for us when i have the whole schedule in front of me and the timing i can plan good rehydration refueling strategies i can know exactly how much load that day or how much volume i can impose on the athlete and i might have to bring that back and auto regulate and pull it back okay so knowing the schedule how much training they've done is very helpful first so that I ensure I'm not contributing to the overtraining. That's right. number one. Then I can yeah. help them strategize refueling, carbohydrate, electrolyte, protein, very often in liquid form because they're going, they can't eat a 20 ounce meat, you know, I mean, six ounces of chicken breast, five ounces of rice and a sweet potato in between. So, right, right. Right. So part of the recovery there is the, getting the right nutrition um, and, and the real food when they can. And I'm a stickler. I, you know, and we have many devices today, as you know, on the sleep side, because here's what I'll always say to that athlete. You can, 
if you want to tempt physiology and be a great performer with no food and no sleep, you join the special forces. And God bless the men and women that do that. Right. But if you have money on the line, you don't tempt physiology. You optimize it. Love it. All right. So we don't go, I can do it on four hours. No, we get eight hours sleep. We get nine hours. We don't go, I can do it without all the water I need. So governing the hygiene and the practices that in recovery is really how I can help. And making sure to the best of my capacity that they're adhering to that. Text me how much water, how much did you drink, how much did you lose, what was sleep, did you get electrolytes in? Yes, I ate, I ate two sweet potatoes. And this at least gives me a trend to know we're in better shape or, uh-oh, we better make some changes. Now, do you ever see, um, do you ever see them kind of hitting a, a, a downturn at some point during a training camp? Um, you know, and then and then start to wonder, well, if we're overtraining, what does this new protocol look like if that's the case? Yeah. So it isn't, of course, all I can do is make recommendations there, right? Because I don't control the camp, right? So I don't want to be in one thing you don't want is internal conflict in the camp. Oh, strength coach says I better take a week off. Well, yeah, skill coach going to punch you if you tell yep. <laughs> you know, so but to a good point, I might say and I work with the team, hey, take the day off, go home, almost like you're in a float tank, air conditioned room, eat, sleep, drink, no stimulus, dark room, shut your brain off, go to bed, take a day or two, because the rationale behind that is we could put eight to 10 units out of training tomorrow if you will, by taking today off, or we could put four units out today because you, you have nothing left and four units tomorrow. That's right. So I will always be a proponent of get away. I have done that and recommended that to many fighters. Go home, eat, sleep, drink, dark room, go to bed and let the brain rewash, cleanse, form new neuromotor patterns from the skills, refuel, and a good day or two rest always seems to really get them back on track because it does happen. It happens amongst the best, right? 10 weeks of three times a day. Come on. Who wouldn't be tired? Well, we've had the opportunity. So um, between myself and another NASM educator, Aaron Drogozeski, we own a place called Recover. And it's about half a city block down from from Henzo's uh, headquarters down on 30th Street between 7th and 8th Avenues in New York City. And uh, we're right there on the corner of 7th Avenue and 30th, and we've developed a really good relationship with them. So especially when fight camps show up, when there's no fight camps, we may not see anybody. But when fight camps are happening, we got Neiman Grace in there and Super Elvis Gashi showing up and all of these wonderful, incredible fighters that are coming in because they have learned the value of recovery. Yep. They've learned the value that they can go in, they can beat themselves up two or three hours a, at a pop for two to three times a day for eight weeks. And that's a really difficult schedule to maintain. And so what we will do is we get their fight schedule. So I want to know what your schedule is for the week. And then because you've got gaps in your day, there are times you want to eat, but there are also times between training sessions where you can come in and maybe we do... Um, 
we do a, a, a CVAC session, or maybe we do a new calm or an infrared sauna. And then, a, a, and then of course, we've had some people popping in pre-fight for those infrared saunas because they're trying to cut that weight. They're like, hey, can we get a bike in here too? I'm like, no, no, you can't get a bike in there too. <laughs> but everybody's trying to cut weight and they're trying to get the advantages that they can. And it's been really nice for us to see this wonderful focus on recovery so that they can go in. And we've had coaches that are just like, I don't know what you do there, but it seems like they're just razor sharp focused in what they're doing. And it's not necessarily because of what we're doing. It's just because the effect that recovery has on a body that's being beaten up on. Absolutely. You, you, that's, I, first of all, I'm sorry to say I was unaware of your facility and I look forward to visiting. Oh, so, please. Yes. Yeah. Fantastic. And and I can I'm I'm so happy you're doing it. We learn new skills. We make new muscle. We our nervous system becomes a new. All of that is done when we're not doing it. That's right. It's done when you're not doing it and you're recurring and you're resting. You advance your ability to store carbohydrates when you're not training, not during it. You advance. You you learn while you sleep. The neuromotor pattern, right? That's when it's becoming permanent. Um, when you meditate, you get parasympathetic influence. You restore, you relax the body. So to your point, the service that you are offering is, it, there is in no way, and it's not even ancillary. It's required. Right. It's required. Right. And I had a good friend years ago. He was a bodybuilder named Big Jim Quinn. And he said this in the 80s, and he said, you know, for me, a good day, a good day of eating and sleeping is better than a bad day of training. Meaning if I, if I'm tired and I'm not, I don't have it that day, it's not always the right thing to push through, particularly right. in a skill sport, because then all you're doing is rehearsing garbage if you're mm -hmm. too tired and not quality skills. So I, I think it's mm -hmm. wonderful to service you're providing and absolutely Thanks. required in sport. Well, I love that you spoke not just to the physiology of it, but you spoke to this idea of of encoding, right? So it's when you learn something, just because you learn something doesn't mean that you know something. And uh, and and that can be said like, um, for instance, if if I could have a kid, like a child, and they can understand my words clearly, but when I say you have to stand on one leg and they have a hard time doing it, it's not because I gave bad cues. Correct. It's because they haven't been able to internalize it, they haven't practiced it, and they haven't encoded that. That's when right. it comes to a skill sport, you have to be able to not just hear the coach say words, and it's not because the coach said it wrong that the athletes don't get it sometimes. Sometimes it's just you got to practice it. It has to refine. It is a coordination that has to be learned and developed. It's not motor knowing. It's not motor hearing it. Now I can do it. It is motor learning. It is motor development. And so it's not something that you just hear once and you're able to do. It's a refinement process. And it's not only through practicing. It is through both practicing and then giving it the space so that your body, your brain encodes it. And that encoding is when you take something that you've learned and actually put it and sear it into the brain so you can draw on it like that. Perfecto. I don't really have anything exactly right. Awesome. And when does that, and when is that optimized? 
you you, you really said get away when you get away from it. Right. Just like you said, when you move away, you be the the skill. And I really like the way you went about that with the motor. It's not you know, it's not just to hear it. it. You become the skill becomes what you are. Right. Like when you throw that right hand, it's not you see, feel it's a multisensory feedback system going on. You know exactly when the right foot pivots and the hip and and you you're you're feeling a kinetic chain that you never knew existed before. You know exactly when to release the arm, when to relax the arm, when to tighten the arm upon impact, uh, the double pulse, if you will. So my so you it takes time, as you said. But the skill become it, it becomes something that you can just do and you are as opposed to something you could know. Many That's people right. know, right? Many people know how to do uh, an inverted triangle or, or get certain skills done mechanically and they can go, oh, here's what I have to do. But achieving that in a competitive environment is completely different, right? Totally different. To- <laughs> totally different. You, uh, have to be, I, you have to know it so well. Yeah. I, listen, I love this conversation, and I'm really interested in who else is out there listening to this and what questions that they might have. So I'm going to kick this over to Greg and see if, Greg, if there's any chatter in the uh, in, in the talk box over there. Yeah, just a, just a little chatter. It's been, uh, it's been quite active. So uh, Cheryl in, okay. in the chat wants to know, do you ever find you have an athlete with a movement disorder that requires regression in training? Wow. Very good. Um, movement disorder. Cheryl, what a brilliant question. I, I would be, you know, not being a, a, a physical therapist and being having a pure training in movement disorders. I would say limitations is what I've encountered. But if you're seeing from a pure um, neurological disorder, not usually. Now, I have had, there are skill sets. This is a really cool question. There are skill sets that for some reason, you know, they, a fighter may just understand a right hand and they just can't throw a left hook. Um, I've had advanced athletes who can't jump rope. I, I can't figure it out and they're world champion athletes. So I think that what you see, and because I'm at working very often at the higher levels, that I, I, in the formal, ter- you know, medical term of a disorder, I don't see that often, Cheryl, but we definitely see it's very amazing that they're comfortable with one skill and get it and they can replicate a neuromotor movement or, or they can attempt a neuromotor movement that's pretty close and completely struggle with it. And exactly what's going on in the brain and why they don't process that is well. So, you know, I mean, a a right hand, but they can't throw an uppercut. Well, the body, the hips, the kinetic chain is not changing that much. So I don't see disorders, but I definitely see a lot of movements that make sense to the athlete. And yet other things that they can't process. And it's quite similar. That's a really brilliant question, but I, I haven't seen it in the purest form, Cheryl, but what a, what good thinking. Do you mind if I reword the question a little bit and say, sure. what about imbalances? So do you see any imbalances in people where you're like, oh, this, uh, you know, I, I know for one, if somebody has a forward head, 
That's not good in fight sports. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, forgive me. Is that what you meant by disorder? I, I don't know. I don't know okay. if it is or not. No, absolutely. For mechanical, yes, mechanical integrity, we see it all the time. Perfect example, Rick, a protracted boxer. Okay, yeah. if, if anyone can see me right. The, the scapula, why? Chins down all the time. Hands are up. Okay? You're in torso flexion. Absolutely. You will see, and, and usually the older athlete, obviously, or the older boxer that hasn't had attention to corrective exercise, okay, or preventative exercise. We don't have to be, you know, if there's no severe mechanical dysfunction or neuromuscular dysfunction, then we know we have great preventative methods for keeping that athlete attuned. Optimal uh, spinal alignment, hip alignment, definitely. We see that a lot. If somebody kicks with that right leg all the time, then we may have issues to address on the left side. If they're just a boxer and they're throwing 400 punches around and sparring and on a heavy bag, there may be protraction. So we have to go to retraction, strengthen the posterior chain to not only optimize the mechanics so we don't get repetitive stress injury, but actually improve performance. Yeah. Great question. Absolutely. We have to do that. Perfect. Thank you. All right, Greg, what else you got, man? Yeah, Maha wants to know, uh, she understands that weight cutting isn't good, but how can they do it safely? And then also, you spoke about the importance of sleep. Uh, at what point in training is sleep the most important? Okay, so how can they do it safely, Maha? That's a good question. Um, I think the most safest way to reiterate is, first, we must know how much weight could come off the body we, we don't want to guess what we can lose three weeks out. So what I do is I weigh, I do body fat measurement, whether it's a, a biometric, you know, bioelectrical impedance, a four point model with the M body, um, or I, I use an ultrasound system or sometimes even a plethysmography, depending if I'm at the lab. But the point is, know how much, so in better words, if they're 205 and have to make 185. And I know unequivocally I can get rid of nine pounds of fat. Well, I already know now I'm safely at 196. Okay? So that's the first thing. I've got to know what they can get rid of through diet, through training, through good sleep. That doesn't have to be there. So if they can fight at 9%, I've got to get them there. I don't want to bring them to six because now that's an issue too. So know how much fat they can take off. Know what they historically fight at. Calculate that deduction. Know that in every camp, so they lost, they could lose nine pounds of fat. They're now at 196 from, from to uh, now they have to make 185. Well, everyone loses two and a half to three pounds of muscle when there's weight loss. It just happens. Mm -hmm. So now I know they're at 196. Hey, now they're at 194, 193 and a half. I do the math in advance. I know when they work out, they lose four pounds of water in a flash and put it back 10 minutes later. Now I have my athlete at 190, 189. 10 weeks out, I've prognosticated what can they get to comfortably without any physiological damage. That example is I brought them from 205 with fat loss, water loss, and muscle loss to 189. Can that person make the four pounds? Very likely because we have 36 hours to rehydrate. If you know the math and how we can get there, you can be safe. But if it's three weeks out and I'm at 205, I don't know what I'm losing. I don't have time to calculate anything. So it's advanced calculation. Sleep, anytime, 
anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> camp, a nap, eight to ten hours at night. And I they do, by the way. They're rolled yes. up in a corner on a mat somewhere, just sleeping. <laughs> you got it. You've seen it, Rick. Anytime, anywhere would sleep. Anytime, anywhere. <laughs> And I, and I don't think, just to answer that more, like, I don't think it's more important in one part of the camp than any other. Sleep is the unforgivable sin. Like, you can't not sleep. You have to sleep. That is the ultimate recovery. Before you start thinking about all these other things, your nutrition is there too, right? But you can't not sleep. And so many people... Um, they give up on that, or it's it's weird. It's this weird badge of honor that they only got four or five hours of sleep, and yeah. then they got up and ran and trained. You need to let that go. That's got to go out, out, out. Absolutely. Temp, don't tempt it. Optimize it. Exactly. It I love it. All right, Greg. What else? And last one here from Keith. Uh, do you think that it's dangerous to do neck training like with a head harness and chain that you hang mm-hmm. away from? Interesting. Oh. That was Greg? I'm sorry, who asked that? That was Keith. 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 Um, Yeah, thanks, Greg. (laughs) uh, Keith, you know what? Um, Okay, so I'm an old man, 55. Uh, I did a lot of years of it. I still, I mean, I'm kind of proud. It's like I just 19 and a half on the neck. But I would say this. Watch the excessive flexion and extension. If you were to take that harness and work it much more isometrically, I think that could be safe. You know, don't overload it because if you're a wrestler, if you're a fighter, time under tension can be very valuable too. So can you can train the neck isometrically with bands, have people wrap it, use an iron neck. But I do think that the neck harness can be used safely. But again, what do you want to avoid? Excessive extension and flexion. I grew up in an era when we did that. And what I now know is had I just trained my trapezius effectively, done isometrics on my neck, or even used a neck harness in neutral neck position, holding the weight and and using my body to pick it up in a neutral, I think that's better because you can build a wonderful neck isometrically and with band work as opposed to excessive flexion and extension. Nice. Nice. I like that. that. Are you good with that? Yeah, I like that. I like that answer. Have you seen, is that, what is the thing called? It's got this like halo that people put on. Yeah. That's what the iron neck is. Yeah. And that's great because you you got a neutral neck and you keep it neutral and people pull on sides. I think it's a nice tool. I've used it. Yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. Because I've seen it pop up in my my Instagram feed (laughs) and I'm like, hmm, let me see. I wonder if I want to give that a try. It's not bad. It's really pretty good. Uh, but but when I've seen it, I've always thought, man, I feel like that is going to be way better than doing these neck crunches off the edge of the ring, which uh, exactly. was a big boxing thing that you would do. And then they'd flip over and they'd do their neck extensions off the edge of the ring and they'd have this head harness and they have plates at the bottom of it. And so they're working out their neck, practicing flexion and extension when I guess when you're fighting, you really want to practice um, not having your chin snap sideways as opposed to practice strengthening it uh, going sideways or up and down or backwards. Right, we need that isometric strength there largely correct. And wrestling a little bit more, you're right on. Rick, look, I used to do hip thrusts, if you will, with my head on a mat. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and hip thrust with my neck. So my point to it is it was unnecessary, everyone. You can get a great neck without doing all that. Too. Right. <laughs> all right. Very good. So, Greg, are we cleared up on the, the list of questions? Uh, I actually have one that I, that I found uh, I've always been interested in. Is it tough to convince uh, athletes, especially you know MMA fighters, 
that corrective exercise is important because it's not the sexiest of, of things to do when it comes to exercise. Great question on that, Greg. Really good question. Here's what I think. I think it was. I think we're getting better at it. And here's one of the ways that I always sell it. Somebody will say, I have a, ah, you know, Tony, I feel a little pain in my shoulder. Uh, it, maybe I can't remedy that right away. But I all immediately know some exercises that may be corrective slash preventative that are going to be helpful. And I sell it through saying, hey, well, you know, and obviously go to your PT, go to your physician, get the diagnosis. I'll wait on, on their diagnosis and get the yays or nays. But I think, Greg, as time progresses, particularly you've got people who grew up in Division One wrestling programs yep. with outstanding athletic trainers, strength coaches. They, it's a new era now. Yep. 20 years ago, they would laugh at a band. Today, everyone I work with will do retraction with a TheraBand and they'll believe in it. And we'll do some, uh, you know, again, like the CS, I really like it. We'll incorporate some of those principles. And I think today, because fighters are concerned about longevity, I think it's much more easy to sell today, particularly in MMA, judo, Olympic sports, than let's say what I call the more freelance sports, boxing and kickboxing, that historically don't have academic, formal training, strength and conditioning, USOC oversight type type, you know, uh, methodologies, if you will. It's, it, it, today with wrestling and, and judo, and you got a lot more of that. But it's exciting to see that, hey, here's how you do it. Here's our warm-up, guys. It's corrective and it's preventative. That's our warm-up. Nice. And they nice. buy it. It also helps where you've got people like, you know, one of the biggest names in the history of the sport, which you guys know very well, uh, which would be George St. Pierre, but he, he really lives and breathes this recovery component, but, and, and he's, he's brought a lot of light to it. And um, you know whether or not he follows exactly what we do with the corrective exercise uh, specialization, he is very focused on his recovery. He's very focused on his flexibility. He's very focused on his correctives. Um, and then that helps kind of spread the news to everybody else that goes, oh my gosh, well, if if this guy can do it and he's one of the he's on the Mount Rushmore of MMA, then maybe that's something I can incorporate and not think I'm 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 playing catch up. Yeah, I think you hit it perfect there, Rick. GSP was I think he had foresight with that. Look yes. at his level of conditioning. Look good posture, good muscle balance. Every you know, just really almost like a physique competitor. Right, Everything, yeah, right. Everything was where it was supposed to be. And I think that's part due to recovery, corrective, and preventative. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And again, to reiterate, just, you know, if it's, if it's a severe joint dysfunction or neuromuscular, hey, that's PT work. That's right. That's, that's you know, physiotherapy, maybe chiropractic. But, but certainly, I think the corrective should, corrective to me is a synonym of preventative. And, yeah. and they work hand in hand. So I'm really happy to know, Greg, that it's, it sells easy today. That's amazing. All right. So, Tony, before we get off, can you just let people know how they can contact you, how they can follow you? If they want to they want to pick your brain or see what a day in the life is like, let them know how to find you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of an under the radar guy. No, I, I, I am. A, <laughs> I, no, I don't mind sharing. I mean, I'm just not a big uh, <laughs> I don't do a lot of it. But but I, my Instagram is called Fight Shape. 
um, one word, F-I-G-H-T-S-H-A-P-E, with an underslash in my last name, R-I-C-C-I. And I am going to work more on that. And, uh, and I'm just on Facebook as Tony. And most of that is all just sports science. I don't really, you know, show you a picture of a dog I don't have, but or something yep. like that. <laughs> and, um, and you can just email me at Tony, T-O-N-Y, at fightshape.net. Um, and, you know, if you have a question, we'll set up a call because I'm a much faster talker than I am a <laughs> type. <laughs> you fit in really well over there at that Sarah. That's uh, all the game. You know it, right? <laughs> oh, man, it's been an absolute pleasure, Tony, having you on this show. I appreciate it. And at some point, I would love to have you back on if you wouldn't mind doing so. I would love to. I thank you. I thank Greg. I thank Nazim. We've had a wonderful relationship and to anyone who joined i thank you very much and i genuinely hope it was of value oh that's amazing everybody thank you for listening this is the nasm cpt podcast my name is rick ritchie you can follow me at uh, on instagram dr.rickritchie r-i-c-h-e-y or you can email me rick.ritchie at nasm.org thank you for listening and we're going to see you next time